Hello again, everybody. Welcome to episode 18 of DLN Extend. If you haven't listened before, we choose topics covered by the Destination Linux Network that we think need further discussion and extend the conversation here. These shows include Destination Linux, Ask Noah, Linux for Everyone, This Week in Linux, DOS Geek, Tux Digital, and our latest podcast, Hardware Addicts. I'm Eric. And I'm Nate, a Linux fitness and vintage tech enthusiast with an almost unhealthy obsession with the OpenSUSE project. So what have you been up to, Eric? I really didn't have any personal space in my house. So it's a fairly big house, but I share it with my wife and daughter. And inevitably, we just have common space everywhere. I have an office that I share with my wife, but it's really not suitable for recording or trying to make content because she's in there and I just, not only is it just kind of weird to have one, someone sitting behind you yeah. when you're you know, talking to no one. But also, it's just not a great room for recording, and my daughter has turned my desk into a project center. And these are, ah, all, yes. these, these are all fine things. <laughs> I have no problem with that. I, I imagine there's a risk, there's a little bit of risk of the peanut gallery commenting as you're working on something, too. I, I've had my kids, you know, when I'm trying to record something, just start, like, peanut gallery mocking me. I'm like, where did they get this from, mocking? Oh, wait. Wait, I know. I know very well where they got that from. <laughs> <laughs> but not that you would ever do that to them, no. I mean, that's... No, no. Or, or make up songs, change the lyrics, and, and poking fun at your kids for making a mistake. No, I would never do that. No, no, certainly not. I guess the funny part or the odd part is I had to find a quiet place and a sort of out-of-the-way place. My bedroom has two walk-in closets, a his and a hers. For about a year now, I've thought, you know, that might actually make a good little office slash studio. And so last week, I kind of got a wild hair and thought, that's it. I'm going to try this out. I have this modular shelving system built into here. It's, you know, it's bolted to the walls and it's like wire rack shelving. Mm -hmm, I know it well. Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty easy to work with. And anyway, so I rearranged the shelves and now I have a long shelf that is sort of like a desktop. And it's up pretty high off the floor. And I have a tall sort of stool with a back on it. I guess that makes it a chair, not a, a stool. stool? <laughs> no, oh, it's a okay. chair. <laughs> say, okay. <laughs> um, the tall chair, not a stool. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Anyway, between the clothing that's in here and just the fact that it's a small room, the acoustics are pretty good. And also, it's just a place for me to put all my stuff. My computer's in here. I've got a second monitor up already. Still kind of moving in and figuring out where everything goes. But so far, it's been very enjoyable to have a space that's all my own that I can kind of grow into and work with. The biggest challenge so far is because it's a small room, it gets really warm in here. <laughs> so Yes, that could be a problem. <laughs> yeah. And it's not summer yet. And summer in Florida should be interesting. The One of the walls is the outside wall to the building. And there's, because it's Florida, there's no insulation so it's literally just the block wall that's, that's mm. the other side is the is the outside so we're gonna see how this works when it gets warm stone does have some decent insulation factor to it so actually it's not it shouldn't be too horrible i would think have you noticed the room warm like a closet warm in the summertime like when going in there well i can't say that i've spent 
a considerable amount of time in the closet when, when I was uh, not in here for a reason. And the other thing is there oh. was nothing in here making heat. So now I've got, right. you know, a computer okay. and lights and things that are, you know, generating heat. So um, I've heard that people with, you know, home studios and sound proofed rooms and things like that, it's difficult because the whole point is that you want it to be quiet and not have fan noise, but then it makes it really, really warm. So I don't know. Challenges to be <laughs> overcome. Yeah. Now, now I'm curious. You moved, how many of your computers did you move in there? Do you move like your, your new um, system you built? Is that also in there now too? No, I, I couldn't or possibly. Just, just, no. Okay. Okay. So you like just your XPS? Yeah. So just, just my laptop. And what I did figure out though was, so I was making a video yesterday and my laptop, of course, when I have OBS running to record and then I've got, you know, audio recording and I've got a virtual machine because I was trying to demonstrate something. So my fans were on in the laptop and they were kind of kicking up a little loud. And a lot of that noise was bleeding through and it was kind of hard to isolate. I The, the thing with noise suppression or noise removal is sometimes it can take away frequencies that that the normal voice it's what makes it full and clean. And so right. it can make it sound kind of like digitized and not pleasant, basically. So I tried playing around and, and cleaning it up and I got it okay. But that kind of defeats the whole purpose of being in here and having a better, you know, sound right. treated room. What I figured out was, well, I've got this Ryzen system in the room over. So I just was... Today, testing having OBS, the NDI source plugin, if you've ever heard of that, but basically you can do the recording and all of the sort of heavy lifting of, of that process of recording a video and all of that on a separate workstation. And then you're sending a, a picture of your screen over to that copy of OBS and it's doing oh. the rendering and the, and the recording. And so that actually worked really well. My kept my laptop cool. I actually had the virtual machine running on that system as well so that I could just oh, wow. look at it remotely. And uh, yeah, it actually seemed to work pretty well. So th again, these are all just things I haven't had to think about before. And now I guess I have a new set of <laughs> challenges or or things right. to, to optimize. Well, that's a really neat way of, of solving some of that problem. You, you've basically turned your, your laptop into kind of a, I don't want to say a thin client, maybe like a fat client where all the processing is happening in another room. That's that's a really clever way to, to solve that problem. And do, does it work pretty reliably as far as the that remote, what was it called, that plugin? It's called New Tech NDI Integration. It basically puts an audio video input and output, and it's using a um, network, it's using the IP network, um, to stream it from a source to a destination and the destination is where you can actually set the recording to be happening. So in my case, the source is my laptop screen and the destination is my desktop PC. Both of them are running OBS. There's no latency that I can see, no degradation of quality. I'm, I mean, I'm sure if you had a poor wireless connection or just a poor connection in general, but you know, I have a fairly decent connection and the quality of the video looked pretty good. I was recording the audio locally, so I don't know if the audio would be as good 
over the network. But um, this is something I've heard of a while ago and just never really looked at until I had a reason to. And this was my reason. But that's that's really fantastic. I, I'd like to see your notes on that. Maybe if you do a video, uh, hint, hint, nudge, nudge on how to do that or just point me to something. I guess that's fine, too. But yeah, no, that's that's really I, I have a an application right now that I can use that for like a, a specific need. So um, that's very cool. I am really glad you uh, moved into the closet because we wouldn't be having this conversation now if you hadn't. So, Nate, what's your week been like? Well, as you're probably well aware, uh, there have been some changes in into how I conduct education for my kids, which I know it's affected you. It's uh, It's been irritating, uh, to, to say the least. So, I've had to uh, kind of ramp up my non-core learning activities with my kids. Okay, Legos have always been a thing in my house, but I've been re- I'm revisiting something called LeoCAD with my kids. I don't know if we've talked about LeoCAD before. I know I've talked about it before. It doesn't sound familiar. No. Okay, so LeoCAD, you know, I'm, I know I do CAD for a living, so, you know, it's kind of my... I CAD for fun, and when I'm not CADing, I'm CADing, right? LeoCAD is an open source application for doing CAD, but with Legos. You don't get the snappy feel in it, which I think that would make it a lot better. But uh, you can create things in 3D on your computer. It's for all platforms, but Linux is all we care about. And uh, there's an app image for it. So we can use uh, your app image launcher uh, tutorial for making it integrate really nicely in your system too. What I use it for specifically is my kids will want to build something. And then I'll say to turn to an education thing is, okay, well, let's, let's document your creation. And so we can take it and we can document the creation on the CAD in 3D so, the, so we can actually have, you know, so the kids tear it apart, we could rebuild it later. And, and what it's, you know, developed into with the kids is now they can actually explore other ideas and maybe they can't find the part. So we can go ahead and pull the bill of material down or parts list as it calls it. And we can order those parts because there's a part number associated with every piece in Lego. This has spurred on a whole new, uh, but a, whole, a whole new level of these new creations and strange ideas and, and fun ideas. And we can take these creations and, and then when they build them, play with them, they'll break them. Because as you know, Legos, they always break and make a mess, right? I can run through with the kids a very abridged failure modes and effects analysis class with them. Obviously, not, it's not the full thing because, you know, we're not going to go through all nine steps. But we can say, what was the cause of the failure of this Lego creation of yours? And, and I can have them you know, think about it. And then we can have them uh, work on how to structurally make the Legos... Lego model or whatever you want to call it, the, their creation, you know, more robust, more stout, so it can be played with harder because, you know, kids are rough and everything. This way you don't have to step on them either. Oh, no, I still step on them. Uh, it was really bad today, but I made it through uh, with no lasting injuries, just just one fall to the floor. So that was okay. You know how it works, right? It seems like the worst one has the point up on the hardwood floor too, and I don't know how that works. Like it gets in between the, the cracks, the hardwood floor, just to stick up just right or something like that. And there are not very many cracks either, just that one. It's just that one board that's a little bit smaller that it, get, it falls into. Anyway, uh, so it's been, it's been fun, educational for the kids. It's, it's a great application. You know, it's open source. It's, it's free to download. Like you can also, you know, in OpenSUSE, you can have, they have it in the, in, the, uh, in the repos. For legal reasons, it doesn't have the, the pack for all the different parts. So you have to in, and do that separately, which I've documented on my site. Just do the app image. It's, called, it's all there. It runs really smooth. It doesn't need much horsepower to run. It's fun. It's a, it's a great educational tool. And you can actually... Uh, now, it doesn't have like physics or you can you, know, you can overload a model. Like you can put parts within parts. It doesn't have intelligence like that. But I think that's okay. It's still a great, a great little application. 
if you're into mechanical design and you want to share it or teach it to kids, it's it's not a bad way to go because you can show them the concepts of assemblies, you know, master assemblies, sub assemblies, and how they all work together. Also, another neat little little feature is you have a timeline tab, and you can actually break it down into steps. I've had my kids do this a little bit, break it down into steps so that you can go through and actually create instructions on the different ways you put it together. That I thought is a real neat little tool too, so you can actually disassemble and reassemble. And my uh, my oldest, he actually created a, well, I helped him of course, but using LibreOffice to uh, circle back on last week, create a an instruction booklet on building this little uh, flying contraption for his younger sister to put together. And I thought that was really neat that he did that as well. So uh, so yeah, LeoCAD. If you like CAD and you like Legos, it's it's kind of a win-win. And it runs on Linux, so that's a win-win-win for me. It sounds like a lot of fun. I'll have to check it out, and I'll definitely put a link to it in the show notes so our listeners can take a look, too. One of my favorite things we do here on DLN Extend is to draw from the Destination Linux discourse and get some uh, some feedback from people. And Vinyl Ninja, one, that's a great name, Vinyl Ninja. In my mind, I'm imagining vinyl records. You know, taped all over the ninja. It would be kind of noisy, I think, especially the scratching sound. But anyway, uh, he says, I have used LibreOffice for such a long time and exclusively. I cannot even imagine using something else. I need it for work, so I have no experience with any other office suites and do not even try them. I might be in the minority, but I cannot remember anymore how Microsoft Microsoft Suite looks or works. I only used it briefly more than 10 years ago and not professionally. In reality, I grew up with LibreOffice already installed on my Windows machine before moving to Linux. Which I thought that was interesting, that he grew up with LibreOffice on Windows. I've not experienced that in the wild. It's out there, um, and it has yeah. been for a long time. I mean, it's LibreOffice is born from, what, OpenOffice? Right. Which came from, was that the original? Well, there was Sun, Sun Microsystems Office Suite. I think they actually it was called something else before OpenOffice, because it was a their own internal or whatever. They, it was like their own office suite for a while, then they made it an open source project, I, I think. Someone can correct me. Lotus had made an office at some point, and it was yes. just a fork of it yep. as well. Was that what it is? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the interesting part about this, the reason I wanted to to bring this up, we had made that distinction of if you were used to a particular user interface, that's what an office program looks like to you, and that's how you would use it. And so, you know, Vinyl Ninja's saying that exactly here, where this is what he's always used, and that's what makes sense to him. And I'm sure if you put him in front of Microsoft Office, he would probably be like, what is this? I don't get it. You know, we had made that connection and and, uh, it's just good to get some reinforcement that that's the case. And from a longtime exclusive user of LibreOffice, that's just what an office suite should look like. I I can relate. I grew up in parallel with OpenOffice, LibreOffice, and Microsoft Office. I guess when they looked a little more similarly, you know, back in the early 2000s. The early Audis, not the car, not the Audi. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. I wonder how many other perspectives out there are like that, like Vinyl Ninjas, that has just been using it because that's just the thing to use. My response to this in the in discourse was that I actually went back and took another look at LibreOffice and turned on the tabbed view. So if you go under views, we talked about all those different ways you can lay it out. It made more sense to me having them separate like that and not just all of the icons. And so from a usability standpoint, just them. And that was a fairly recent edition. I think that was last year that they added that. It's, again, it comes down to, I, I suppose, what you're used to. And I, I guess anybody can get used to anything if, if you had to. 
But LibreOffice putting that in there as an option made it so that now when I took another look at it, it does make more sense and is just easier to use. This episode of DLN Extend is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You can get all this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. That's right, $5 per month. Can't beat it. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for two months free with $100 credit by going to do.co slash dln. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with $100 credit by going to do.co slash dln. And we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. On episode 97 of This Week in Linux, open source is helping to fight COVID-19 and uh, well, other diseases too, they, with a folding at home. If you can spare the CPU cycles, which I'm guessing most of us probably can because you know I, I do sleep at night usually, so you can actually donate your computer CPU cycles to help the distributed computing network. I don't even understand how it works and how they're able to utilize, send things to my CPU, but apparently it works. And it's been around a while. I've never actually done this before, but it looks, well, it looks interesting. And I think it, you know, it's for a good cause. Been around for a while is kind of an understatement. So it started in October 2000 at Stanford University. So it was... Oh! Yeah. Yeah. It's been around for a very long time. Been around for longer than I've been in Linux. Hot dog. And you think about the technical challenges back then of, you know, slow internet and well, not very fast PCs. And the whole point was for disease research. And it's been historically targeted at researching cancer, ALS, Parkinson's, Huntington's, these complicated diseases where you have to do all of this complicated computing. And normally this is stuff that would be done on a dedicated, let's say, supercomputer or, you know, bank of servers, something like that. What I find really interesting about this and, and always have, the really cool thing is that, you know, in aggregate, everybody's small slice of CPU essentially equates to a gigantic supercomputer. And so it's, hmm. a, it's a really small way to give back or to participate in something where it's not causing you any kind of additional money or time or effort other than just setting it up. And, you know, it goes towards, in this case, they're using it to research COVID-19, but all these other diseases and medical issues and from a, like a, you know, computer user nerdy standpoint, it's just a really cool example of distributed computing and how you can make a difference by doing essentially almost nothing. We are certainly not experts on this topic whatsoever. I feel like there's almost nothing I can personally do to contribute or do anything to offset this other than trying not to either catch it or spread it myself. And beyond right. that, <laughs> you know, like it just, it, everything's crazy. Like everything's closed, you know, schools are closed, uh, libraries, the government off, everything is closing. It's not even like I can volunteer or really do much of anything. And so this just seems like one of those okay, I have a bunch of computers and if this will help, then great. You know, let's do this. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is actually really, I think it's a really great idea. So, and actually, as I'm, I'm reading through it now a little bit, you know, while you're talking and not paying attention to you. 
Uh, it says basically what they they do an SMP client similar to how it's being done on Linux and Mac OS, I guess, and Unix. So for any other supercomputer, they're just you. They're just basically spitting out to you as a remote host. That makes sense, and that's actually really neat. And and really, I mean, my computers sit pretty idle most of the time. And if this can accelerate the uh, the possibility of me, you know, getting out of my house a little bit sooner, I I think I'm going to go ahead and do that. And I will tell you more about it next week. <laughs> well, in the meantime, I'm dying to know: Will this run on a Commodore 64? Uh, Commodore 64s can't use Deb or RPM package builds, so at this time, it doesn't look like it's going to happen for my. It'll just have to sit idly by. So that's that's an this is an unfortunate reality of the situation. A boy can dream. I I wasn't <laughs> expecting that question. <laughs> So one of the other topics that Michael brought up was Clonezilla Live. There's a new release, 2.6.5-21. There's a there's a release number for you. I like right? it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's... Just because of the dash 21. Yeah. You threw that right on the end there. Couldn't be 2.6.6. No, no. We had to go 5... No. Yes. 5-21. No, we have to be very right. specific now. It makes sense. Total sense. Well... I like it. Very clear. <laughs> <laughs> I... I'm a fan of Clonezilla and have been for quite a while. I've used things like Norton Ghost and uh, Cronus, which is another way to take snapshots. And, and the beauty of this is you can take snapshots of partitions or entire disks and then be able, and it's, it's bare metal. So you can take an entire snapshot of a disk. And then if something fails with that disk, you can either reuse the disk if it's possible, or you get another disk and be able to restore bit for bit back to a disk. So bare metal is the absolute like pinnacle of backup because it's literally, you know, every bit of data on a disk. It's offline, so you do have to boot into this, hence the the live part of it. So you would burn it to a USB back in the day, obviously a CD. And I've used this for years to do backups when I moved away from those other options. Like, you know, many years ago it was Norton Ghost and then in between, it was Acronis. When I found Clonezilla, I really just gravitated towards that. And so every so often, I will do a bare metal backup of my systems and my wife's computer. And, and just in case, you know, just in case. And obviously, it's not up to date. It's not like an incremental backup. But it is an excellent disaster recovery tool. And it works really well. It's all sort of command line driven. And you have to kind of understand disks and partitions. So it's Certainly not as user-friendly as something like a Cronus might be, but in terms of just the right tool for the job, it's perfectly suited for doing exactly what it does. Have you ever used it, or is it something you're familiar with? I've been familiar with it, but I've never actually used it. I haven't had a case to use it, if that may sound strange. Typically speaking, I've all my backups, I, I've just been you know, doing incremental backups, and I've never had to actually move like a do a bit-for-bit bit backup of a drive to another drive, basically ever, actually. But yet you use it a lot, and we do very similar things. But I, I don't really know what I'm... Maybe I'm Linuxing wrong, but no, I've never actually used it. I think it's just a different approach. There's absolutely nothing wrong with an online copy from one disk to another. In some cases, that can be really slow, though. So if the disk is in the same system, on the same bus on the motherboard, then it's not too bad. But if you're, let's say, you're trying to copy this to an external drive through, you know, USB or something like that, or over a network, it's just going to take a lot longer. Whereas this is just 
so in my case, what I do is I'll hook a external USB drive and then boot up into Clonezilla and it sees all of the drives. And then I just tell it, okay, this is the drive I want to be the source. And this is the drive I want to be the destination, which of the source partitions or the entire disc do I want? You know, what type of compression do I want? There's lots of different options. You can get pretty involved with it. But, you know, the way I do it is just basically it's a copy of that disc. And like I said, I do it every so often. And I have used it to migrate as well. So if you had a situation where maybe a disc was failing or you just wanted to migrate. So you can also migrate to different size discs, which is uh, can oh, be helpful. Well, that'd be handy. Yeah. So if you had a smaller disc and you wanted to go to a larger one, you could actually do that and then have it expand the partitions as it was putting the data on the disc. So Well, that, that actually interests me. So I, I've had a thought of migrating because I, I have a really nice, really nicely running root install. And I was thinking, I just if I want to upgrade that drive where my root is, it'd be nice to actually then move that to a different drive and then expand it. So that that actually that does sound. Does that do like you know, boot flags and everything? And some of that you might want to do. So after you've restored, you may want to actually go and and change settings after that, depending on your system. But far as I know, yes, you can do all of that sort of thing. So at some point in time, my server I built, I to bootstrap it, I used a drive, and I want to swap that out with an SSD instead, not because I really have to have to, but I just want to. And I'm thinking that, you know, I, I don't want to have to go through the process of reinstalling everything just because I'm lazy, and which is why I use Tumbleweed so I don't have to reinstall. So a Clonezilla would be actually a good application then for that, so I can just move that to the SSD and then when I restore it, then hopefully that would work. Hopefully, right? Seems like I should probably test it out on something else. <laughs> well, the worst that would happen is it didn't work. And I mean, you're not going to, you've got an image, right? And so it's it's right. not going to hurt anything. The only thing it could hurt is if the destination that you're restoring to had data on it. I mean, but you wouldn't want to do that anyway, because you'd be overwriting it. You might pick the wrong option when you're restoring and it fails for some reason, but you can always just rerun it. Right. That's interesting. I think it's worth trying if you haven't. Yeah, I should probably try that out before the drive actually fails, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> once it's clicking or, or well. It's game over. Have you, have you had an SSD fail on you yet? No, not yet. I've had uh, SD cards fail on me, but not as, but not like a, an SSD. Yeah, I haven't either. And, you know, they make a big deal out of the life cycle and, you know, once things start going bad. And I mean, I've had some SSDs that have been going for ooh, many years. I, I'm, I haven't run into that yet, but I suppose just like any other piece of electronic equipment, it will fail at some point. Yeah, I only just got into the SSD game three years ago, so it's it's still it's still new territory, new and exciting territory for me. When I see SSD, I I'm like, hey, this is new technology. It's this is exciting. So I'm I'm that far behind. <laughs> well, my days of the click of death are are behind me. Um, <laughs> I have a few spinning disks still. My my NAS still has spinning disks. So far, everything's been okay. I guess at some point I will see an SSD failure and live through that, but uh, it hasn't happened yet. Let me find a piece of wood. There's one in here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, your wall, your wall made wood. Or a closet. Is there a wooden? Is there a wooden rack that you uh, put your clothes on? I think. Like a, I like think a, the only the rack? only wood in here is the door frame itself. So I'll just oh. I'll knock on that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Well, we've come to the end of another show and would like to invite you to continue the discussion with us on Telegram and Discourse, Mumble, or Discord. Visit the DLN website for more information on how to connect to the social channels and also on shows and creators like myself and Nate. I mean, just, just saying, you might want to come check us out. We're friendly people. We are. We like, we like it when you, when you, you know, look at stuff and, and click on our links and, you know, tell us things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, like I fell on my face in that one. No, it's... I got caught in a wet paper bag and I couldn't get myself out. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> you can find all that information at destinationlinux.network. More information on where to find me specifically. Hey, I just said it. I'll say it again. Destination Linux Network. This time, I'll be more specific. Under the creator section, you'll find myself and all the different places I am. My different social media, YouTube, all that good stuff. And Nate, I'm just going to hazard a guess. Where can we find you? Well, you can start at the same place on the creators page at the destinationlinux.network page. Or you can go to cubiclenate.com. Links to my regular things are there. Uh, and, and as always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode of DLN Extend. Until then, have a great week, everyone. See yous. Hey, that was my line. See yous. <laughs> <laughs>